before Bill comes up, Bill is a tremendous teacher. But you know, I told him this before. It wouldn't make that much difference if he was a great teacher. If he if he didn't follow the law that Jesus Christ gave. Does Bill love the brother? In March, I told him. I said, you don't have to be here. And he was here. And he came uh, because Mark died. He wanted to be here. He said, I have to be here. And then Clifton uh, wound up in a nursing home. And I'm sure he would have died way before he died. But Bill went up there, did a little investigation. He called, couldn't get him. I went up there, figured out what it was. And he wanted to leave the nursing home. He said, yes, he took him, took him home all the way to Florida. Sold his house. And he had to be kind of a burden. <laughs> but that's love. We're not perfect people. We're not perfect. We all make mistakes. Uh, you have to love the brother. And then when Clifton dies, he took him up. I think it was Saturday week ago. They had the burial. Or last Saturday, they had the burial. And uh, he could have gone on home. But he stayed till Sunday so he could be with us. I mean, he could have been at home maybe Thursday. But he made plans because church is important. I mean, it means a lot. Uh, that means more than the truth. What is equal? you got to have both. And Bill's got both. So come and listen to a great man of God. contributions <laughs> made by the individuals here are incredible. They're really they're really a blessing because most CI people they don't want to leave their homes. They listen to a podcast and they go about their life all week. They're alienated from society. They don't seek fellowship actively. They basically use their alienation as an excuse to sit home and post memes on Facebook like that's ever going to get anything done. Never. So it's sad, the state of most of our people, even the awakened Christian identity people, is pretty dismal. The scripture reading today, the procedure has changed a little, so I'll read it. It is from Psalm 44. Though thou hast 
sore broken us in a place of dragons and covered us with the shadow of death, if we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yeah, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. This is what even the staunchest people, or the perceivably staunchest people in the faith, ask all the time when bad things happen. Why would God let that happen to me? Why would that... I, I try to be a good person. I go to church every Sunday. I only watch porn twice a week. <sighs> Why do these terrible things happen to me? And they never consider their, not only their own prayer, but the prayer... The, the, not only their own sin, but the sins of their community... That's the discussion, that's one part of the discussion here this, this afternoon. The second part, being here in March after the death of Pastor Mark Downey, we also saw the death of um, several other figures this year. Jim Wickstrom, who I was never really wild about, but who was a notable Christian identity pastor for a long, long time. Um, several other right-wing figures like Harold Covington, now Clifton Emmeheiser. I thought that I should make my attempt to offer this community some encouragement and it's a topic that even the pastors here have had division over in the past I pray that division doesn't exist anymore so this talk is it is titled death and disaster or disaster and death why do we suffer and ultimately in the end none of us are going to suffer that's the promise in Christ that's what we have to understand that this life and its trials are temporal they're temporary off the paper I just did a um, series of commentaries on Ecclesiastes that go into this very subject very deeply because Solomon was basically addressing this very subject when he wrote Ecclesiastes the vanity of man and you could take Solomon's words and understand why Paul of Tarsus came to a lot of his own conclusions on this subject Paul said a lot of things in Romans about the eternal nature of the spirit of man that he was getting right from Solomon 
even though Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes are, are purposely sarcastic, cynical, he, he used irony to make his point, you have to be able to detect the irony and, and the cynicism. They were literary devices he used to prove that God does exist and that this, this state of vanity that we experience here now itself is vanity. In modern times, when we have floods and drought, when we have pestilence and disease, very few people who are affected by these things ever even consider what manner of sin they have committed or what manner of sin they have allowed to exist in their communities, that they should suffer such things. But as our ancient ancestors believed, when such calamities befall us, they are clearly punishments from Yahweh our God. The proof that such a concept was prevalent, even in relatively recent times, up until the through the 18, 1900s, most people believe this, is in the very origin of the word which we use to describe such calamities, which is the word crisis. Crisis in Greek, the word crisis. In English, a crisis is a time of danger or trouble. But in Greek, the word means decision or judgment. And it's not our decision to be struck by calamity. In our scriptures, it describes the judgment of God. It's the common word used to describe the judgment of God. Sometimes the King James Version translates it as damnation. Or, or similar words, related words, is damnation. Modern secularized dictionaries attempt to obfuscate the connection, but it is the true origin of the modern English use of the word crisis. In Greek it's judgment, in English it's just a horrible thing that happens. In this modern world, we have been deceived into thinking that natural disasters originate from other and merely natural sources. And today we are even further deceived by those who would even claim, quite frequently, that such disasters are caused by man, that they can be controlled by man. In truth, the actions of man have no significant efficacy on nature outside of the providence of God. When man tries to create his own world, he fails, and his actions will only help to contribute to the punishment that he shall receive for mocking God. Those long lines of streaming chemicals in the sky are the perfect example of that. While it is not very clear in the English of the King James Version, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul mentions those 
who abuse the cosmos, the world, the society, who abuse the cosmos for their own advantage. We see them in the newspapers all the time. Good stewardship is found in the man who functions within God's law and not in spite of his law. Once we have this understanding, there arises another question. Should we even help our fellows who become victims of disaster? Since disasters befall men when they dwell unrepentant in sin. But here we must be careful. For example, in Mark chapter 14, verse 7, Christ had told his disciples that you have the poor with you always. And whensoever you will, or whensoever you so desire, you may do them good. So we cannot despise the poverty of the poor is a punishment from God upon them, even if at times it is a punishment. Rather, we must see poverty as a trial for the wider community, whereby God also tries the wealthy to see whether or not they would consider the poor. So the gospel encourages men to remember the poor, or sometimes even to share their wealth with the poor. This was a lesson we should have derived from Exodus chapter 16, that those who gathered much manna had no more to eat than those who gathered little. They all ate according to their need. And there we read from verse 17, And the children of Israel did so, and gathered some more, some less. And when they did meet it with an omer, that means measure it with, an omer is perhaps about a quart or two quarts, I forget the exact measurement. So they measured it with a measuring cup. They measured out this manna. When they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over. And he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. This was not communism. All able bodies labored, although some are gifted by God to be better laborers than others. So in a time of tribulation, where they had only manna to eat because they were being punished for their disobedience, this was an enforced sort of brotherly love to ensure that each member of the community, both the weak and the strong, had an assurance of survival. You feed your brother even when he's down, even when he suffered calamity. You don't have to give him a television or buy him a car, but you make sure that he can survive so that he could help himself. Likewise, we should be aware that disasters may also fall, befall men as trials. But that sometimes the trials are not only for those who suffer, but also for those who witness their suffering. Christ had asked his opponents, as it is found in Luke chapter 14, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fall into a pit and will not straight away pull him out on a Sabbath? Of course, the self-righteous Pharisees 
would have left that ox or that ass sit in that pit. But why would there be an ox or an ass in the pit in the first place? Because Yahweh wanted to punish the ox? Or because he wanted to try the hearts of men who encounter the ox? So, of course, we should have empathy and come to the aid of the ox. Likewise, not all of our poor brethren are sinners. Not all of those who suffer calamity or disaster are sinners. Good people, their homes burn down. Christmas Eve. <laughs> oh, they shouldn't have been celebrating Christmas. They don't know whether they should. They think they're doing the right thing celebrating Christmas in, in their paradigm. And, and they may not be sinners, but their house is burned down. Often that's to try the community. Christ himself said in Luke chapter 6, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So as Christians, we should indeed help our brethren who are fallen, no matter the reason for their fall. As Paul warns in Galatians chapter 6, we correct our brethren with humility, lest we be tempted in the same manner which they were tempted, and we ourselves may certainly also fall. But while we help our brethren, <clears throat> we are also obligated to correct them if we see that they have sinned. It's not our place to interrogate them. If something bad happens to you, I should reach down and help you up. It's not my place to say, oh, what were you doing last night? Are you on drugs? No, it's not my place to do that. Were you gambling? Were you out whoring around? It's not my place to, to do that. I should just simply help you. But if I see that you have sinned, it's my obligation to correct you with humility. And if you haven't sinned, if I see that you have, if I do not see that you have sinned, to accept that some things, bad things, sometimes bad things happen to good people, and even to apparently decent people, for reasons that we do not always understand. You could fall, and maybe Yahweh is trying my heart to see if I'm going to pick you up. And if I'm callous and I don't, somebody will come along to pick you up, and the judgment's on me. But we don't see that in this life. We don't see that. But we see another dimension to reality that's often not perceived that explains why this is so. And Christ himself informs us in Luke chapter 13, if we pay attention to his words, that tyrannical government, as well as unexpected calamity, are judgments from God. Where he said... And Luke explains that there were present at that season or at that time some who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And I'll explain that momentarily. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye, or do you believe, that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you, nay, they weren't sinners any more than the rest of the Galileans. I tell you, nay, 
but unless you repent, you shall all perish likewise. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Do you think that they were sinners above all the men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. I'm sorry, I kind of update the language a little as I proceed. This means that Pilate had purposely, Pontius Pilate had purposely destroyed some of the Galileans for one reason or another on a feast day or a Sabbath day as they made their sacrifices. So he mingled their blood with their sacrifices. That's what Christ meant by that. But the Galileans who suffered such a tragedy were not necessarily sinners any more than any other Galileans. Likewise, those who died when the tower in Siloam had fallen, they weren't necessarily sinners to any greater extent than the rest of the people in Jerusalem. We often hear it argued that if there was a beneficent and just God, that such bad things would not happen to presumably good people, or at least regular people. But in whose eyes are people good? Leviticus chapter 5 tells us, And if a soul sins, and hears the voice of swearing, and is a witness, whether he has seen it or known of it, if he does not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. And this language is quite difficult. If someone sins, and you see that person sin, you have an obligation to announce that person's sin to your community. Otherwise, you are just as guilty as the person who committed the sin. It is not enough for us as individuals to simply be good. Rather, it is a matter of God's law that if we do not stand against the evil which we witness, then we become just as responsible for it as those who partake in it. Likewise, Paul tells us the reasons for the decadence and immorality in ancient Rome in Romans chapter 1, where I will cite my own translation. And just as they do not think it fit to have Yahweh in their knowledge, Yahweh handed them over to a reprobate mind. Here we learn that sexual deviancy isn't the sin, it's the punishment for other sins. It's the punishment for the abandonment of God. Yahweh handed them over to a reprobate mind to do things not fitting. Paul uses very polished language here. <laughs> Being filled with all injustice, Fornication, greediness, wickedness, full of envy, strife, murder, treachery, malignity, slanderers, loud talkers, haters of Yahweh, insolent, arrogant, pretentious, contrivers of evil, disobedient to their parents, void of understanding, covenant breakers, merciless, heartless, just as those who knowing, and this is the important point here, just as those who, knowing the judgments of Yahweh, 
that they practicing such things are worthy of death, not only they who cause them or commit them, but also they approving of those committing them. If you approve of the sodomy and fornication in your community, you're just as guilty of the crime as the people committing it because you didn't stand against it. You might look like you're an upright individual who never sins, who never does anything wrong, cuss word never came out of your mouth. But if you accept the homosexual who lives next door and treat him as a, 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 a upstanding member of the community as anybody else deserves treatment, you're just as guilty of that homosexuality. If you accept the race mixer, you're just as guilty of the fornication. So a just society cannot be maintained unless it also worships Yahweh our God. These traits that Paul lists here are a perfect description of our society today. Paul is explaining that these people were given up to perversion. They were given up to all these evil, wicked practices that they were committing that they came in ancient Rome to accept as normal. And there is other literature, the words of Tacitus, who, who basically described the Romans as having accepted all sorts of immorality as being modern. We see the same pattern today. Oh, it's, it's old-fashioned to despise faggots. No, it's not. It's godly to despise faggots. Well, the same thing was going on 2,000 years ago in Rome. Paul is explaining to us here that God gave these people up to this immorality because they abandoned him. So a just society cannot be maintained unless it also, also worships Yahweh our God. These traits that Paul lists here are a perfect description of our society today. The rampant sexual deviancy among our young people, the race mixing, the rebellion against traditional morals, the rebellion against parents, all are a punishment from God because our people did not seek the knowledge of him and his will. How many white Christians are proactively resisting the current immorality, even the open promotion of sodomy which we witness this day? Very, very few are proactively resisting it. Very, very few will announce out there in the street that it's evil when they see it. So they deserve just as much punishment in the eyes of God. And we wonder why we suffer calamity. We can blame the enemies of our God for all of our woes. And we can tell in great detail how the enemies of Christ have used their media and their newspapers to condition people and bring our society to the point where it's at. But we went along with it. My grandparents, my parents, my great-grandparents went along with it. 
I spoke to my own grandmother at great length about some of these things, and she died at 95 years old, and she went along with it. She thought the roaring 30s, the, 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 the 1920s, the 30s, the 50s, the hops, the, the dances, she, the drive-in movies, she thought all that was great and went along with all the immorality that was oozing out of all of those places. People went along with it. It was modern. We can blame the enemies of our God for all of our woes, but they are not the cause of the problem. Rather, they are the result of the problem. Evil prevails because we refuse to open the word of our God and read his law in order to understand what is good. That's the only place you're going to understand what is good. The seeds of today's problem were sown a hundred years ago, or a hundred years before that, or a hundred years before that. When we as a people accepted the economic rule of the Jew, and before that we accepted the emancipation of the Jew, which led to their economic rule, and we slaughtered our own brethren in the Civil War, in the First World War, in the Second World War, we gladly slaughtered our own brethren at the Jews' beck and call in the wars which he created. Other troubles took root among us even earlier than that. We cannot justly expect our conditions to improve so long as our people worship the enemies of our God or even accept them. First century Christians were told not even to accept not in the second epistle of John it says don't even bid Godspeed don't even greet anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ with the current state of what was once Christendom it's a wonder that we don't have further droughts and famines and plagues it's amazing that Sodom and Gomorrah didn't happen to us 50 years ago. What happened to them? When the judgment of God does come, and this we must understand, it takes the righteous with it as well as the wicked. There's an example of this in Ezekiel chapter 21, where we read of an impending judgment of Jerusalem just before the city is destroyed by the Babylonians and Ezekiel was told to write and say to the land of Israel this is the remnant of Israel the people that after the Assyrian deportations had moved back out of Jerusalem and tried to populate some of the other cities in the countryside it's the remnant of Israel left in Judah and say to the land of Israel thus saith Yahweh Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of the sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of the sheath against all flesh, from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, Yahweh, have drawn forth my sword out of its sheath, it shall not return anymore. He would have constant warfare against Jerusalem until they were all deported, taken away by the Babylonians. 
the righteous and the wicked would be cut off. So if you're not a sinner and you're sitting in a community full of sinners, that self-righteous attitude isn't going to do you any good. Oh, I don't sin like they do. That's not going to do you any good. You're in a community of sinners. We're told, come out from among them. Christians are... I've seen so many times something horrible happens in the house next door. A fire, a police raid, a robbery, a burglary, a hanging, somebody commits suicide. And self-righteous Christians are so prone to saying, oh, I'm glad it didn't happen at my house. And won't lift a finger to help the people next door. Now today, well, we hear a lot of talk of resistance against the present tyranny. We must understand that Paul of Tarsus informs us in Romans chapter 13 that government, and especially tyrannical government, government is a punishment from God. The children of Israel demanded a worldly king back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and God told them, you want a worldly king, he's going to screw you over. And they didn't care. We want a worldly king. And they've been screwed over ever since. And that's part of the reasons why we're undergoing this suffering today. Because we think that we should have worldly kings instead of accepting the Lord is our king. Christ is our king. He's our only king. No man should ever rule over another man. We shall have Christ rule over us. If we all accepted Christ as our king, we would never have problems with one another. Never. Government is a punishment from God. Among those who seek to resist here in America, we hear a lot of talk of guns and gun rights. But tyrants don't care about rights. And tyrants don't care about your guns. All of the guns that we can hold will do us no good unless we first turn to our God and seek His will, cleansing ourselves of all that He rejects. From the 33rd Psalm, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh and the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Yahweh looks from heaven he beholds the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looks upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts alike. He considers all their works. There was a warning in Amos of a time where the society is so evil that the righteous have no recourse. This reflects both the state of ancient Israel and the state into which our modern society has descended at the present time. So we read in Amos chapter 5, they hate him that rebukes in the gate. That person that does go out there and accuse the society of its sins and excoriates the faggots and points out the race mixers, the society hates that person. In ancient times, the person that rebukes in the gate, the gates of the city, especially the gates near the market entrance of the city, was where the judges sat. 
that was where the prophets announced the sins of Israel. That was the public courts of the ancient cities. They hate him that rebukes in the gate. And they abhor him that speaks uprightly. We witness that all the time in our society today. They hate us for telling the truth. They hate us for reciting God's law in public. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, this is turning to the general society, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, those Jews love to live in those huge stone houses. But you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just, they take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor. In the gate, the people expecting justice, they turn them aside from their right. They have a right to justice. It is a difficult time for the righteous when they are hated for standing against sin and decadence. So the prophet warns in the very next verse, Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. People know they're going to be beaten. They're going to be persecuted if they go out and announce the sins of the society. They, we're at the point now where we can't even do that. Maybe in the 40s and 50s we still could, so the clans had their public marches. But today when we march, the Antifa, the sinners outnumber us 10 to 1 in New Orleans, 6 to 1 in Charlottesville. <laughs> and the media and the government, they support the leftists. They support the sinners. They support the Rainbow Coalition. The Black Lives Matter move, thugs. Things can get so bad that we risk our own lives for keeping the law of Leviticus, which requires us to testify against evil. Ostensibly, because our government systematically supports the evil. This is what we experienced in Charlottesville just over a year ago. This is the state that we are in once again today, where sodomy is now called marriage, and the government openly defends sin. Therefore, when the judgment of God finally befalls us, we can expect many apparently righteous men to be cut off along with the wicked. For this Solomon had warned in Proverbs chapter 22, goes hand in hand with that quote from Amos. A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. But the simple, the simple-minded, those who don't foresee the evil, pass on and are punished. Most of these Judeo-Christians who are just going along and they're out there in society, and we wonder why wicked things happen to apparently good, good people, there you have it. In the end, God will not be mocked, not by even the mightiest of governments. 
And there will come a time when the righteous, whether they are simple and suffered along with the world, or prudent and hid themselves from the coming judgment, they shall be vindicated. Continuing with that same 33rd Psalm, there is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by his great strength. A horse, or an vehicle of war, which is what the horse was back in these days, a horse is a vain thing for safety. We could substitute that. A hummer is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him. Because we have trusted in his holy name, let thy mercy, O Yahweh, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. For us there is no salvation without our God, but with Yahweh our God we can be freed from the mightiest tyrants. So we see that under the judgment of Yahweh, both the good and the wicked can be destroyed for the sins of a community or a nation, that even apparently good men can die as a judgment against the wider community when the community as a whole accepts or even merely tolerates the sinful. But we also see that unjust governments, while they may have at one time operated as agents of the wrath of God, that's the story with the Assyrians, the mightiest empire operated in accordance with Yahweh's will as an agent of his wrath to punish the children of Israel. But then just 60 years after that punishment was complete, Assyria was completely obliterated. Unjust governments, while they may have at one time operated as the agents of the wrath of God, can themselves also be destroyed once their iniquity is fulfilled. That was the experience of Assyria, Babylon, and Rome. It will also be the experience of America, without a doubt. However, with all of this, even in times of peace, even in times of relative obedience to God, where there is no harsh judgment passed upon our society or our community, we grow old or we fall sick and we die. Sometimes we die so that we're spared judgment. Sometimes we die so that we're spared further suffering. It is inevitable that we lose friends, loved ones, family members, and that we ourselves shall succumb to that vanity to which our first father was subjected for his sin. Very few of us are going to escape this. There will be some. Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There will be a few lucky survivors who are still here when our Lord returns. 
none of us should count on being one of them. <laughs> none of us should be so confident in ourselves that we will be one of them. We would all love to be one of them. Let's, everybody wants it to end tomorrow. That just may not be the case. We have many dear friends who are sick and our prayers are with them constantly. We pray for their well-being and their recovery. But, of course, we must understand that the will of Yahweh our God is not always what we ourselves may desire. We can't see the future. He can. Life's going to go on according to His plan. That doesn't make us bad Christians because our prayers aren't answered. It simply means that Yahweh has a better plan and that we have to submit to Him. So, we honor Him whether our prayers prevail or not. We grieve upon the passing of a loved one, and we should. Of course we shall miss them. But we must know that nothing happens outside of the will of Yahweh. In accordance with our scriptures, we can only account for this by considering the original sin of our race and the punishment for that sin which committed all of the sons of Adam to suffer death as a penalty. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon described the vanity of man, the fact that we're only here for a short time, that we're all going to just disappear one day, as this sore travail that God had given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. That's the key phrase there, to be exercised therewith. If you are exercised, there's a greater transcendental reason for that. So our very uh, lives, our very lives are an exercise in vanity, which is the temporary nature of this life. This exercise came about as a result of sin. The same writer in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, a book that's in the Apocrypha, which should have been in our Bible. It should have never been taken out of our Bible. It should be right there in between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, in verse 23, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. So many sects fight over what the image of God is. There's a likeness and there's an image. Here we see what the image of God is. It's an image of his own eternity. Ostensibly, it must be that the spirit put inside us from God is eternal. That we bear that image of his eternity. The likeness... To understand the likeness, we only have to turn to Christ. He is God, incarnate. What he looked like is what God looks like. Because the 
the entire nature of God can't be seen by man, as the scripture also informs us. So the closest thing we're going to get to the likeness of God is Christ. If we want to understand the image of God, Solomon just described it for us. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that hold of his side do find it. Through envy of the devil. This must be reconciled with the words of Paul of Tarsus, since neither writer can fail, where he said, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. If sin is not imputed where there is no law, we must ask why the law was ever given to man, which in turn had compelled Christ to suffer for our sins. To answer this, I will follow a portion of my own translation and commentary on Romans chapter 7, beginning with where Paul had written in verse 7, now that we may, now what may we say? Is the law a sin? Paul's answering that very question. Certainly not. But I had not perceived sin unless by the law then also I had not acknowledged covetousness unless the law said thou shalt not covet we wouldn't even perceive of our covetousness unless we understood that the law commanded us not to covet we wouldn't think that desiring something someone else has was wrong unless the law explained that to us in other words, we would be living by the law of the jungle, where it's not wrong for the mighty to take the things of the weak. That's how the niggers and the Chinese and, and the Mexicans live. They don't think it's wrong. They've never had the law. When the police come and arrest them, they're never ashamed that they took somebody else's stuff. They're only upset that they got caught. But the sin, having taken a starting point by the commandment, has accomplished in me all covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. The law was fulfilled in Christ. And in Christ, the children of Israel were released from the judgments of the law. But that does not mean that the law was a mistake or that the law in itself was sin. When Paul recalled the law, sin, his sin came to mind and he realized his error. So he continues in verse 9, Now I was alive apart from the law once, but the commandment having come, come to mind, the sin was revived and I died. You realized the the gravity of your error and it was found in me 
that the commandment, which is for life, it is for death. You wouldn't perceive that you should be punished for this sin except by the law. For sin, having taken a starting point by the commandment, had seduced and killed me through it. We do not realize the gravity of our sin until we read the law and find that the punishment for our sin is death. Once we realize that obedience to the commandment keeps us on the path to life and see the consequences of our sin, we should understand that our sin leads us to death. So Paul concludes, So indeed the law is sacred, and the commandment sacred, and just, and good. Then that which is good, to me, has it become death? Certainly not. But sin, sin that it may bring sin to light, through the good in me, accomplishes death, so that the sin becomes excessively wicked by the commandment. In the end, it's the sin that's condemned. The good in Paul can read the law and recognize that his behavior, which was contrary to the law, was sinful, and also acknowledge the punishment which he merited for that behavior. The good in Paul can recognize that sinful behavior merited death, and therefore Paul is describing a learning process. The result is that the Adamic man may understand how important it is to keep the law the law of Yahweh in his heart. It's in our heart. Now it is. It wasn't in our heart 3,000 years ago. Yahweh said in Jeremiah he would write it in our hearts. A lot of people think that happened mystically. It didn't happen mystically. It happened through cultural acclamation. Because our ancient ancestors learned the law even when they departed from Yahweh, even when they were put out of the kingdom, over many centuries, this law was passed down from mother to son, from mother to daughter, from daughter to grandson and granddaughter, passed down through the generations. This law became inscribed on our hearts. That's how Paul told the Galatians. The Galatians were part of that Assyrian deportation of the Israelites. Their ancestors were in that deportation. 600 years after they were deported, Paul told them the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. On the surface, the Galatians didn't have the law when Paul addressed them. The Galatians, historically, are Galatahi. The Galatahi that's what the Greeks called them. After, several centuries after the Greeks called them Sake and Kimeroi, the Kimeroi or the Kimerians or Kamri of the Assyrian deportations. The Kamri, the house of Amri of the ten northern tribes. The Assyrians called them the Bit Kamri, house of Amri. That's what it means the Israelites, the Galatahi, are forerunners to the Germanic people. And a portion of them were in Anatolia, and Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians to them. Paul established assemblies there. 
among them, as well as among Greeks and Romans. And he's telling them the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. He meant them because they had, even though they were without the law for 600 years, they had those centuries of having that those commandments, those moral standards passed down from generation to generation. That's how it was written in their hearts. That's how that happened. In reality, not by God waving a magic wand and saying it's going to happen and it's just all of a sudden there. We, through cultural acclimation, even when we're not raised in a church, most of us, most of the people of our race, understand that it's bad, it's a sin to steal, it's a sin to kill somebody, it's a sin to slander somebody or to talk back against your mother or but we know these things through cultural acclimation through those those moral standards which god laid down for our ancestors passed down from generation to generation so paul is describing a learning process which occurred in ancient times through reading of the law the result is that the Adamic man may understand how important it is to keep the law of Yahweh in his heart and do his best to abide by it. It is important that the sin becomes evident by the commandment so that the Adamic man can experience sin and by that experience he can learn not to do evil. By that experience he shall witness the result of his having done evil. We are not saved because we do not sin. That's a church myth. As Paul informed us that all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. And as David informed us that in the sight of God, no flesh is justified. We are saved in spite of our sin. Not because we didn't sin but in spite of the fact that we have sinned. So in Romans chapter 5, Paul informed us that if the transgression of one, the transgression of Adam, if in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, which is our first father, much more is the advantage of the favor, the free gift. The gift of justice they are receiving, in life they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression, the transgression of Adam, is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, because our first father fell, we all have to experience death, in this manner, then through one decision of judgment, the passion of Christ, the decision of God to die himself, to free us from the law. That's what Paul explains at length in the first six verses of this very chapter, Romans chapter 7, that he died to free us from the law. For all men is a judgment of life, the entire Adamic race is granted life through that one decision, the decision of God. And that decision was made even before Adam, the lamb slain before 
before the foundation of the world means that God created the Adamic man knowing that they were all going to sin, knowing that they were all going to die, but knowing that he was all going to make sure they were preserved alive. Therefore, verse 19, therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man, the many were set down as wrongdoers or as sinners, in this manner, then, through the obedience of one, the many, those all men, will be established as righteous. For this same reason, the Apostle John wrote in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Each who has been born from of Yahweh, each man of our Adamic race, does not create wrongdoing or sin. There's language in John in the first epistle of John that's very confusing. There's a verb, hamartine, which just means to sin. But then John uses another distinct grammatical construction. It's the verb poiain, or to make or to do, with the noun hamartia, which is sin. John is actually drawing a distinction in his first epistle between those who simply sin and those who are the authors of sin. And all of the translators miss the distinction. Each who has been born from of Yahweh does not create wrongdoing, does not author sin, does not originate sin. No, we get caught up in sin. We've all been caught up in some sin. But the society, for the most part, has approved of that sin or hasn't excoriated people for that sin. Or they're just little sins that aren't worthy of death. We all did something stupid when we were kids. These people that are sodomites and homosexuals today, most of them are in that state that they're in because the society's approved of it. And they teach these kids in school that this is okay. This is the way you might have want to go. You, you like to play with dolls, don't you, little Johnny? Maybe you should take this path and become a tranny. That's what's happening to our children today. and It's happening at a stage where they themselves are innocent. That they're being programmed like this. Each who has been born from of Yahweh does not create wrongdoing, does not author sin, because his seed abides in him, and he is not able to do wrong, because from of Yahweh he has been born. This isn't really saying on the surface that we don't sin. It's saying that sin is not going to be imputed to us, because we are the children of God. Our race has been forgiven its sins. Because the real contention in this world, and this is another thing that's obfuscated by the churches for 2,000 years, the real contention in this world is between Yahweh and his ancient adversaries. The collective Satan described in Revelation chapter 12 and apparent in Genesis chapter 3. If you read throughout all the Old Testament scripture, You'll read a lot about the wicked, the wicked being destroyed. The wicked are going to be destroyed. The wicked are never offered an opportunity for repentance. The wicked are going to be destroyed. 
they're going to be eliminated. But then you read a lot about sinners, and sinners are offered repentance. Is the scripture in conflict with itself, or are there two distinct classes of people? One are not born of God. As Christ told them, they're born from below. Why? How could a person be born from below? A person could be born from below one way. If he's a bastard, if he's something that Yahweh did not create. And there were a lot of bastards in the ancient world. They were called Kenites, Canaanites, Edomites, and on and on and on and on. They were all bastards. And they were the wicked in ancient Jerusalem that David wished would be destroyed. But Yahweh said he was going to let them hang around to be thorns in our sides and pricks in our eyes. Pricks in our eyes blind us and practically every white Christian person in the world today has huge pricks in his eyes. Absolutely blind because they don't understand the wicked. David did. David understood the wicked were going to be destroyed. But that sinful Israelites, they weren't going to be destroyed. They were going to be saved as Yahweh, God, promised to save them. He said in Isaiah, I will redeem you from your covenant with death. Your covenant with death shall be annulled. You are not your own. You can make a deal with the devil. But you know what? You're not your own. You can't give yourself to the devil if you're a child of God. He's going to redeem you from that covenant with death. We have no choice. If you are a child of God, if you are an Adamic Israelite individual, you can't lose your salvation because you have no power over yourself. Your sin won't doom you to hell. You have no power over yourself. He says you're saved. He said all Israel will be saved. Now, there's a whole different level, abstract level, of those who are going to be resurrected to eternal life and those who are going to be resurrected to eternal disgrace, eternal reproach. That's still eternal. <laughs> They'll be around forever. They may not like it. They may suffer, but it's still eternal. That's Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That's Paul in chapter 3 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, where Paul says, Some men lay on its foundation precious stones, gold, and silver, and other men lay on its foundation wood, hay, and stubble. And when all your works are burned in the fire, you yourself are still saved, because Yahweh promised to save our entire race. Isaiah chapter 45. I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm way off the paper. I'm, I'm sorry. Our race has been forgiven its sins because the real contention in this world is between Yahweh and his ancient adversaries. The collective Satan described in Revelation chapter 12 and apparent in Genesis chapter 3. There are things going on in this world since the foundation that are bigger than us. There's a struggle that's bigger than us that we were given to experience 
so that we may learn the consequences of sin and rebellion from God. And it's getting pretty bad, those consequences. And we should be blessed for seeing them. Because there's going to be a reward in the end. Later on in Romans, in chapter 8, Paul of Tarsus explained further, speaking of the Adamic creation, this is another place where the King James Version just obfuscates the message. Therefore, I consider that the happenstances of the present time are not of value. Looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation, the creation, singular, and I'm going to explain that momentarily, awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To vanity, there we have that vanity that Solomon spoke of, to vanity, the creation was subjected. In other words, it was a determination by God that we live temporary lives here and die for the purpose of a greater reward in the end. So we really don't die. These physical bodies die. But if this is a learning experience, there must be a reason for it. To vanity, the creation was subjected not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. In expectation that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. Here Paul explained the subjection to vanity of the Adamic man which had been described much earlier by Solomon in Ecclesiastes. So even our vanity is vanity. The vanity won't last. You're in a state of vanity right now, but it's going to pass and you'll be in a state where you're not in vanity, where you're not temporary. Our vanity, our subjection to vanity is temporary. And it is not what we were actually created for. The wisdom of Solomon agrees where it says, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. It may be established that Solomon already knew that when he wrote Ecclesiastes, where he had said that vanity is what God had given to the sons of men to be exercised with. And if this life is only an exercise, there must be a greater existence for which man is being exercised. And that too is a promise of the gospel of Christ. So in understanding, as understanding Christians, we also have a sure hope
that the loss of our loved ones is really only a temporary situation. It's no loss at all. They just escaped vanity before we did. Now let us read from my own translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed that from of the dead he has been raised, how do some among you say that there is not a restoration or a resurrection of the dead? Then if there is not a restoration of the dead, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is empty, and empty is your faith. Then we are also found to be false witnesses of God, because we have testified concerning God that he raises the anointed, which he does not raise. And that's how I interpreted the word Christ, because I believe Paul was spoke, speaking of the entire group, which he does not raise, if indeed then the dead are not raised. Indeed, if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. But if Christ has not been raised, empty is your faith, and you are still in your sins, because you haven't been released from the judgments of the law. And then those that have been dying in Christ have been destroyed, because they have no real hope. If only, and this is the key portion of this quote relevant to our talk today, if only in this life have we had hope in Christ, we are the pitiable of all mankind, meaning that after we die, we still have hope in Christ, even if we're dead. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are sleeping. Indeed, since death is through a man, restoration of the dead is also through a man. Just as in Adam all die, we were all subjected to death. We were all sentenced to sin and to death, all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3. Yahweh knew that we were going to sin before we were created. But that sin is a learning experience that we're going to survive. Just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ, all, meaning all of the race of Adam, shall be produced alive. We're not really judged for our sins. We're judged for what we have done with what Yahweh has given us. So the measurement, some people we believe should be, we could all come up with a couple of names of people who don't deserve anything, including this life. They've done such horrible, horrible things that we wish we could torture them forever ourselves. But they're not judged according to what we think. Yahweh knows what that sinner was given. He knows what that person went through in his life. He knows what that person was able to do with the situations he was confronted with. Only he could judge that person. Notice where Paul said, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable of all mankind. In ancient times, this is clearly apparent in all of the literature, the ancient literature of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans. In ancient times, even pagans 
had always believed that the spirit of man survived the death of the physical body. But they could offer no hope for those spirits, suggesting only that they were confined to Hades or the netherworld for eternity. The ancient Greeks believed that. The ancient Babylonians believed that. That when you die, your spirit went down into the netherworld and stayed there forever. The ancient Greek poets, even the cynical and, and, and sarcastic poets who were mocking the idea, made dialogues between dead people. Homer had Odysseus visiting the underworld and talking to the, the deceased Achilles and his mother and, and people like that. That they always understood the existence of the spirit of a person after death and they made up dramas and plays imagining these things. The story by Euripides, Alcestis, is a story of a very noble woman who died in place of her own husband. And for that she was rewarded by Heracles who descended into the netherworld and brought her back up. Now this is a pagan story, it's not Christian. We shouldn't accept it as doctrine. It reflects the beliefs of ancient Greeks 600 years before Christ. That reflects the fact that in ancient times, all the different branches of our race believed that the spirit survived the body after death and the personality and the consciousness survived the body after death. The Greek writers wrote of the Galatahi, the Germanic people, that they were fierce warriors because they understood that even in death they were never going to die. When I first began to study Christianity, after being introduced to Christian identity, I thought long and hard for many months comparing, in my mind, the materialist worldview of life and death to the transcendental worldview, which is expressed in scripture. The idea that you transcend this world, that there's something greater for you outside of this fleshly world. As I progressed through reading the Bible cover to cover for the first time, I encountered the book of Ecclesiastes, and I realized that the failure of the materialist worldview was addressed 3,000 years ago by Solomon. Most people don't get it because they don't understand it. Solomon was using irony that the book was written with a purposely skeptical attitude because the author, in his wisdom, wanted to relate to us that there is no hope without our God. So in turn, in turn, if there is a God, then we do indeed have hope. So then I came to realize that all certainly is vanity, unless there is a God. And since both the wonders of creation and the marvels 
of prophecy had the signature of our God all over them, then the promises of Christianity must be true. Debbie asked me the other day, don't you ever doubt? No, I don't doubt. Not because I believe in superstitions. I don't doubt because of my studies. I have no doubt at all that the confidence expressed by Paul of Tarsus is true. And as he says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. No, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think. With this message of hope, we hope to encourage our brethren. This is the promise of the gospel, and it has been obfuscated by the churches, by the priestcraft, for nearly 2,000 years. Think about it. If you know that you're going to live forever, if you know that you're a child of Yahweh, the priests have no control. They've trained you to think that they have to give you this host every Sunday, that you have to follow their sacraments, that you have to go basically pay homage to, to these men every week and, and throughout all the major events of your life, they have you believing that you need that to be saved when you've already been saved. That was the cause of the Reformation. That was the driving force behind Martin Luther. That was his biggest critique of the papacy in the Catholic Church. That they're teaching you that they're helping you get saved when Christ already did the saving 2,000 years ago. So Martin Luther's like, what the hell are they talking about? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Surely Christ in the gospel, he talks about a hell. We see the word hell quite often in the King James Version, but we don't know that there are two separate terms that are both translated hell. The one word is the Greek word Hades. Even Christ used that Greek word Hades to describe what the ancient Hebrews called Sheol, the underworld abode of the dead. That's how it was described, even in the Old Testament, um, when Saul summoned Samuel, the spirit of Samuel, to come up out of the ground. I believe that's all. The idea of the underworld abode of the dead, I believe, is an allegory. We'll get to that momentarily. Sometimes that word hell comes from the Greek, the Greek form of the Hebrew word Gehenna. Gay, G-A-I, it's not the gay that we know. We understand it as Gaia, the goddess of, of the earth, right? The pagan Gaia. That's from that word gay or geis in ancient Greek, which means land. And the henna part comes from hinam. Gehenna or Gaiahenna or Gehenna is Gehenna is the land of Hinnom. In ancient times, the Valley of Hinnom was apparently in the Old Testament a place where children were offered up for sacrifices in the fires of Moloch. In the time of Christ, 
it was said to be the place where the refuse from Jerusalem was taken and burned. The Apostle Peter in his first epistle speaks of the fiery trials of this world and even the fiery trials of the Christian faith, the persecutions that we would undergo. So we can see that Gehenna, or hell in that sense, is a reference to the trials which we must undergo in this world. And many of us in this world are punished for our sins. And they are fiery trials. Some of us are punished or tried even for our faith, and they're fiery trials also. I'm sure the reward in the end is different for those tried on account of their faith than it is for those tried on account of their sin, but the trials are often very much alike. In the parables of Christ, we see him warn that, wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, halted or maimed, rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. That's fiery trials that will last for an age, that word everlasting, for an age, or for a, a, a long period of time. That's not necessarily the committing of your spirit to fires under the earth. That is you spending the rest of your life in in trials and condemnation for your sin. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And that phrase, hellfire, is literally in Greek the fire of Gehenna. We must think about those words. But when do we enter into life? If we perceive that we already live, enter into life, what's he talking about? Enter into life, if I cut off my hand, I'm gonna enter into life with one hand. When would I enter into life with one hand if I'm already alive, when I cut my hand off? This life we now have is temporal, but our true life is eternal. As Christians, we enter into life when we pass from this world. So Christ had said, and this phrase is of great contention in Christian identity circles, and I understand the misunderstandings that have wrote, circled around this particular statement by Christ in the gospel for a long time. Christ had said to the wrongdoer that was crucified alongside him, the wrongdoer who had accepted him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I know that there are some in Christian identity who doubt the King James translation of that passage. And believe me, I'm the first one to criticize the King James translation of a lot of passages. But they got this one right. Here, the Greek and the English in the King James reads exactly like the King James does. 
this is exactly what Christ told the wrongdoer, that he would be with him in paradise that very day. That we enter into life when we pass from this world is evident elsewhere in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 22, Christ told his adversaries, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If this statement is true, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cannot really be dead. They're not hiding in South America. but they cannot really be dead. They must be living. If this statement is true, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cannot be dead. And Christ also meant what he said concerning Abraham as it is recorded in John chapter eight. Your father Abraham rejoiced rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad in Romans chapters 5 through 8 among other things Paul spoke of the purpose of God to preserve the entire Adamic race where Paul said the creation the creation itself awaits the manifestation of the sons of God and then he compared that creation to other creations to angels to heights to depths etc etc there we learn that by using that word creation that Paul is referring only to the creation of the Adamic man it has nothing to do with angels heights depths nor any other thing. In other words, Paul's using that creation as a noun that describes our race alone, distinct from other things in God's great wider creation. So it doesn't include other races of people. It doesn't include dogs and goats and kitty cats or anything like that. When Paul says the creation itself awaits the manifestation of the sons of man, he uses that language, nor any other creation, to describe other elements of, of what we see as God's creation. When we think of the creation, we think everything in, in the whole universe that God created. Paul uses that creation just of our particular race. And the language at the end of Romans chapter 8 proves that. In Romans chapters 5 through 8, among other things, Paul spoke of the purpose of God to preserve the entire Adamic race. Then he discussed the relationship, and, and that was in Romans chapter 5. Then he discussed the relationship of Israel with the law in Romans chapters 6 and 7. And the meaning of the redemption from the law which is in Christ which we see in the opening verses of Romans chapter 7 then later in that chapter he discussed the two natures of Adamic man the fleshly nature and the spiritual 
nature and the struggle each of us have to reject the sins of the fleshly nature and follow after the spiritual nature. In his final conclusion to that discussion, he said in Romans chapter 8, from verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies, and ostensibly it is God that condemns. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. In other words, there is no condemnation for God's elect. It is Christ that died, Paul says. That's a reference to the fact that all Israel has mercy. Yeah, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. The same statement from our scripture reading where we quoted it from Psalms, where Paul had quoted it. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In all these things, in all what things? tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Even the dead, those who die at the edge of the sword, are more than conquerors through Christ. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other, the King James Version as creature, it's that same word translated creation, nor any other creation, meaning that the Adamic race is one particular creation that Paul is talking about, nor any other creation, the Greek word kathesis, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Yahweh has justified his elect. That's a promise throughout Isaiah that he's going to justify Israel, that he's going to justify his elect, that his righteous are justified, that Israel has his righteousness. No matter how they sin, there's no condition on those promises. That's a hard pill to swallow, even for a lot of us in Christian identity. But we can't judge our sinful brethren. Only God can judge them. And there's different degrees of reward. So those who lived a true life and sought God and did well and loved their brethren, they're going to be rewarded more greatly than people that live sinful lives and despise their brethren. And some of those people will awaken to the eternal reproach that Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter 2. There's no escaping that. Paul informs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that some of us are resurrected with no reward. But we will still be saved. Yahweh has justified his elect. 
So we read in Isaiah chapter 45, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. As Paul describes in Romans chapter 5, this decision by Yahweh to preserve our entire Adamic race was made long ago, and for a reason which transcends what we perceive in this world. For this the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, that for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Sin came into this world, and our race was subject to death for envy of the devil, which is Solomon's summary, not mine, it's Solomon's summary of the events described in that parable in Genesis chapter 3. Then, immediately after that, John wrote, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And I'm not, I understand that I'm repeating that, and that's purposeful. Ostensibly, if one's seed remains in him, then one is of the creation of Yahweh and of unadulterated race. The concept is mentioned in the account of the Genesis creation, even of plants and trees, whose seed was in itself, after his kind. If you race mix, your seed's not in yourself. There's two different seeds in you, tied up to one another. This is the strongest meat of the gospel. In the end, because of the fact that the world was already corrupt when each of us came into it. The Adamic man was born, who was born after his kind, according to John, shall not be held liable for his sins. That is the message of Paul, John, and the prophets. But as Paul had asked in Romans chapter 6, and this is an important concept to understand, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. Actually, that the King James translated the phrase certainly not as God forbid, but that's cool. How shall we, that we are dead to sin because Christ died for us, we should realize that it's us who should have died for our sins. How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? So once you make that realization, you shouldn't want to sin again loving our God. Upon hearing his gospel, we should all cease from sin, as Christ himself had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Alienated from God in sin. The Apostle Peter describes even those Adamic souls who lived in the days of the flood of Noah as spirits locked up in a spiritual prison in chapters 3 and 4 of his first epistle. There were no sinners above these people. These people were doing everything evil under the sun. Everything that goes on in Greenwich Village today was going on in the days of Noah. The race mixing, the sodomy, the, the partying, and all the sin that they were all destroyed for in the wrath of God. There were no sinners beyond these people. And if these people, their spirits were preserved, and these people heard the gospel after they departed this world. If they could be saved, anybody 
any Adamic individual is going to be saved in that sense. Those spirits are going to be preserved. They're going to have that life. Evidently, they were released from that prison when Christ himself preached the gospel to them. And of this Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, For this reason, for this cause, was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. They were judged for what they had done while they were in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Because in the end, God created a Danic man to be immortal. God didn't, he, he's not going to lose. He's going to prevail. We're going to live whether we like it or not. Make that covenant with death. He's still going to redeem us from it. So we see that the spirit of man can exist. And it can have thoughts of its own after the death of the body. Otherwise, as Peter also described in that same place, how and why should the dead be judged? What would be the point? What would be the purpose? In his second epistle, the Apostle Peter wrote of his physical body as a tabernacle where he said, yeah, I think it neat as long as I am in this tabernacle. What's a tabernacle? It's an empty tent to stir you up by putting you in re remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle. He must depart from his fleshly tent. Even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Paul of Tarsus refers to the physical body as a tabernacle in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he wrote, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That building must be the spiritual body which Paul made reference to in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he said, and this is again according to my own translation, and there's a reason for that because the King James ignored one word in the Greek. In this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay. It is raised in incorruption, meaning that it can't be corrupted again. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body your spirit as well as your fleshly nature are in that same seed of your parents as long as you're a child of God. If, if, that's the word that King James missed, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. If you're a natural Adamic person, you have a spiritual body that you can't even perceive. The King James Version corrupts the meanings of Paul's words where where it omitted the word for if in verse, 24, verse 44. Peter writing, so long as I am in this tabernacle, informs us that his real body is a spiritual body 
and that it can continue to exist and be conscious after the physical body is dead. Paul means here to describe that same phenomenon. In Hebrews chapter 10, Paul explained that by the blood of Christ, men may once again enter into the presence of God. That's why those spirits who died before the flood were in prison. They were alienated from God. So, Paul wrote of his own dilemma, which is the fear of his own death, right after he had described his physical body as a tabernacle in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he said, Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, here in this body, we are absent from the Lord because he's not here with us. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, meaning to depart from this tabernacle, and be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted by him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, the greatest sinners or the greatest saints, according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. So there's going to be repercussions for your sins, but you're still going to be there. You're still created to be eternal. If we never sinned, what would be the point of being subjected to vanity? But Paul explains that being subjected to vanity, we learn what sin is. The Roman Catholics want us to pray for the dead. Why should we pray for them if they are already in the presence of God? It's we who are living in this world who remain in tribulation. If we we're good to those who have passed. This is why it's so important to forgive your brother. If we are good to those who have passed, we should hope that they should be praying for us. In Numbers chapter 23, from the words which Yahweh himself had put into the mouth of the wayward prophet. He was still a prophet. The Bible calls him a prophet, even though he was a screw-up, Balaam. Who can count the dust of Jacob and number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. That's a reflection that the children of Israel were guaranteed life, were guaranteed eternal life, that even the prophet Balaam would want to be like them. There is no shame in death. There is no shame in death, the death of the righteous. Our departed loved ones 
are not among the dead. We must believe that they are among the living. We're among the dead. You go downtown Cincinnati and see all those niggers and Mexicans. They're the walking dead. We're among the dead. When we depart, we join the living. Why do we have death? Why do we have disaster? Why do we suffer? Because we are subjected to vanity in order to learn from our sin. To learn from the consequences of our sin. And each one of us, in a way that Yahweh God chooses, assists our kinsmen in that same endeavor. Perhaps in ways we could never imagine. Some of us do it by sinning. Some of us do it by sinning a lot. Sufferings in this world are inevitable, but we should endure them with joy because in the end there is a far greater reward. The apostles themselves were beaten, narrowly escaped the judgment of death, and they responded by rejoicing. We see this in Acts chapter 4, where the Pharisees and Sadducees, they wanted to kill Peter and John. They wanted them stoned. But they relented to the wise counsel of Gamaliel, who basically told them, hey, if this message is from God, you better leave these people alone. And if it's not from God, he'll punish them. His, his advice was extremely wise for a man in his position, being a, a, an icon of the establishment. So the apostles escaped death. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees agreed. And we read that when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they still had to get some licks in, right? And they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And the apostles departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And daily in the temple, they immediately defied the Pharisees and Sadducees. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. As Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 from verse 9, As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the hearts of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And as he said, going back to Romans chapter 8 for the third time, in verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So whether we suffer disease or disaster or even death, and not necessarily of our own doing, but for the judgment of the people around us, we must always glorify our God because we know that there is a much greater purpose for it all. One of the last, one of the last promises we find in scripture is in Revelation chapter 21. 
and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And by then, after we have learned the consequences of our sin, there should be no more rebellion, because that's how this world started. Adam was put into this world when it was in a state of rebellion. The proof of that is in Genesis, in Revelation chapter 12. We see the rebellion against God by a third of the angels. And they're cast into the earth however you want to envision that, because it's an allegory. They're cast into the earth. And that third of the angels, the leader of that group, is that old serpent. That must be a reference to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. There are people who would argue that nothing in the Revelation is in the past, it's all in the future. And I would challenge that idea just a couple of verses later where we see that the woman with the child and the great red dragon stood before the woman with the child to kill it. The revelation was given in 96 AD by the ascended Christ to John the Apostle. And that woman with the child must be that Christ because that child is told, we're told of that child in that same chapter, that it would ascend to heaven and rule over all nations. So that child must be Christ, and the revelation is describing something which happened in the past. Because that was in, ideally, the year 0 AD, right? <laughs> when the child, the great red dragon, attempted to kill that child. And here the revelation is 96 AD. So it does. The revelation does reveal things that happened in the past. Because Christ came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Some of that revelation was in the gospel. Some of it was in the revelation. That serpent is already in the garden when Adam is planted there. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I would consider that a whole race of serpents already in the garden. The land of Nod. Cain was cast out of the garden and went to the land of Nod. The land of Nod, that's a Hebrew word that means wandering. Yahweh demarcated a garden that his enemies immediately infiltrated. That's the parable of the wheat and the tares. So there were other people here on, on, on earth before Adam was put here. Adam's placed here, and Eve is immediately seduced by that serpent. So we have the Cain problem. And Cain's kicked out of the garden and goes out to the land of Nod. And Nod in Hebrew means wandering. And wandering in scripture is very often an allegory for sin. Paul uses the term wandering to describe sin. The whole rest of the world was already in sin. All of these other races must have come from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil because Yahweh doesn't take credit for creating them anywhere in scripture. 
There are two trees in Genesis. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. There are two sets of nations in the parable of Christ. Sheep nations and goat nations. All the goat nations share the same fate as the devil and his angels. The sheep, the sheep nations are only the nations of the children of Israel. In the end, in Revelation chapter 22, there's only one tree, the tree of life. There's no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the goat nations are consigned to the same fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The Bible's a really simple book. Start out with two trees, one of them's bad, one of them's good, one of them is evil, one of them's planted by God, can't do any bad, we'll all be forgiven, we'll all be redeemed, at the end you have only a tree of life. So in the beginning there were many races, and in the end there's one. The Bible's a pretty easy book, once you get the whole picture down. Thank you for joining me, thank you for joining me and listening to me. Praise Yahweh.